Hey everybody, this is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posty Podcast. Welcome aboard! And for friends who want to support our show, make sure you go and visit our sponsor for today, who is Veeam Software. So if you go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, uh, that'll take you to the Veeam Software site. You can learn about your data protection needs and actually just grab Veeam Software for yourself. So make sure you go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse and show a little support for the show and for our sponsors. Today's conversation is with Nick Parek. Nick is the author of The Future of Extraordinary Design. It's actually a fantastic book, and Nick brings an incredible view on how to bring the people-focused usability and user experience into design of, of everyday things. We go through his own history, uh, the idea of, of how to achieve the ideal design, and what goes into thinking about how to design for a true user experience in everything. Uh, Nick's a, a fantastic speaker, a fantastic writer, and definitely you'll, you'll hear how he really approaches things and it's stuff that we should all think about. So with that, I want to welcome everybody aboard and enjoy a conversation with Nick Parekh. My name is Nick Parikh, and this is Disco Posse Podcast. This is a fun. Uh, topic for me. Uh, I'm very happy to welcome Nick Parekh with me today, who's an author, prolific writer, uh, even outside of the, the book you did create. Uh, the one thing I always love to do is to point people at where they need to go and buy more things. So let me put that shout out right now. So if you do nothing other than spend time listening to this great conversation, you should follow it up by ordering the future of extraordinary design. Uh, so Nick, let's have you introduce yourself and we're going to talk about the, the features and capabilities that design can bring us and, and a lot around that. Sure. Um, so my name is Nick Parikh and uh, I work as a design strategist and today design is no longer what it used to be just uh, 15 years back. I actually came from a graphic design background and, uh, and later down the track I, I studied business design and, and I've seen really design exponentially grow over a period of time. And when I say that, uh, design at one time was about colors and the shapes and everything around the way it looked. And today, um, I wrote this in my book, The Future of Extraordinary Design. And one of the topics is design is no longer about doing things. It's about the feeling that you create. And uh, I'll, I'll start by saying one thing, that how many people actually already feel energized before they head to their Starbucks and grab the coffee they want? Um, they, they already feel energized. Or if you know that tomorrow morning you're gonna go on a holiday, your walk and the way you talk has already changed before even you got on that flight. So, so design is about the feeling and it's about how it makes you feel and how it makes your customers feel. You, you bring up something interesting and it sounds obviously like you've, you've gone into the, the psychology and the the fundamentals that really create 
experience. And, and really this is, like you said, it's not just design of, of print and visible things, but literally the experience you can generate as a result of how you design things. Uh, yes, absolutely. Because I think design, as designers, we have to understand our customers or everyone in the ecosystem, the psychology of it. How does it make them feel? You can have the best experience. You can have the best UI. You can have a great experience. But if it doesn't make a customer feel right, then 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 we failed in some ways. And that's what designers have to understand. It's It starts with a feeling and it doesn't end with the feeling, but you want them to hang up or you want them, if you're on a customer service, design thinking can be applied everywhere. You want them to leave the service or to, to leave the service with a smile, basically. It's the neat thing. You brought up the, the phrase that I think people should really latch on to, which is design thinking. In development of products, there's effectively two two methods you have to really attach to. Number one is systems thinking, right? Everything you do, uh, how do we systematize it and, and, and think in the context of the taxonomy of behavior of the system itself. But for who's going to consume and utilize that system, it becomes a design thinking. What are, what are kind of the resources that, or what is it that brought design thinking into the forefront, Nick? I'm curious when this became, not obvious, because I don't think it still is obvious, but when did it become prominent maybe in, in what you saw and, and what the world has seen in, in the change of things? I, I, I think there are a lot of theories around it. My personal belief is it came about because, because people no longer wanted big corporations to design and deliver. They wanted to have a say. It's just that over the years, design has become more democratic where everybody wants to have a voice. People don't want, people don't want XYZ company deciding a feature that nobody wants to use. It, rather than going top down, it, has to, it had to become bottom up. So it's like, it's like, I want to tell Amazon what things I care about. And, and same with everyone needs to have a voice. And design thinking is just a way so that you no longer just, and at some point, even companies, uh, companies embrace it because they need this, because it's just so confusing. Because back in the day, a, a particular product or a service used to be used by thousands of people. And then you can judge where they're from and what they're looking for. But today's products and services no longer touch a thousand, no longer touch a million. Sometimes they touch billions of people. So how do you decide what is the next approach or your roadmap for the product, uh, for the product iteration or how your product will evolve over a period of time? Design thinking encompasses of everyone's voice, be it a stakeholder, be it a consumer, be it everyone and not just external, but also internal. And uh, I'll talk about a couple of projects that I worked on. I was at Chase. Um, I was part of a team where we were thinking branch of the future. And uh, one of the things happened was that when we were told that branches are no longer what they, they are today, right? I mean, branches earlier were designed, started in the 1920s, they were designed for a very transactional approach. 
Today, we do all the transactions on our mobile or basically online. So how can these branches actually change and, and, and pivot to something else than they are today? And one of the ways in which we had to do it was actually speak to our, our customers who will actually help us decide what they want to see in their branches and what they want to see in their community branches. The other part is that not just customers, but we actually heard a lot of voices within Chase itself, the tellers and the people who worked at Chase branches for years. And they actually told us what are some of the things because they have a direct interaction with the client. They are the first line with the client. So they told us things that they care about as a department, but also that what their customers have often told them over the years that what they miss in the branches. So design thinking is not just about one man's voice or a one company's voice. It's about collectively bringing ideas together. It's about co-creation that can actually bring to the forefront and then let companies decide what the next step should be or what the next feature should be. But this brings up a, an interesting point, Nick, about where the ideas turn into a productized you know, a thing, you know, and as you, and it, whether it's experience, whether it's an app, whatever it is, even the in-person experience, like I, I, I used to do, I worked in retail for many years and I actually, I, I was a cobbler, I actually repaired shoes and, but through the use of good experience and, and understanding customer flow, I was always a bit of a nerd about uh, behavioral psychology. And so I had actually built all of this sort of in-store experience, which didn't seem like it was possible in a shoe repair, but our our store actually won a merchandising award for the the large mall in, in Toronto, which was kind of funny. Here I am accepting this award and you know my my management team is like, you know, how did this happen? I said, well, because I thought harder about what matters to the people that I speak with and, and interact with every day and what can I do to make their flow and experience better. And it really was optimization of, of flow and optimization of, you know, in a sense, it was leading towards sale and, and, you know, consumption. But they, you know, understanding the business and the metrics saw, only saw the results, but would never have connected that my store should behave that way. And if I took the same design to another location, it wouldn't work. So this is, when you talk about Chase is a great example, where they typically have a unified experience. And how, how much is unified and how much is individualized when you think about that process? Because imagine, you know, if you go from region to region, from state to state, from country to country, you could have vast differences and it can really sort of change how you approach with that design thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so actually I'm, I'm really glad you brought up this, um, this example and this topic because that is one of the chapters I started in my book. It's called standardization and why it doesn't work in today's world. Um, I'll start by saying that how did standardization of everything we do in the business world, also in the design world, it came about purely because at some point companies wanted to grow and they wanted to grow fast and they wanted to expand not just locally but globally and uh, and when you want to grow something globally you need to have formats you need to standardize everything and in some ways over the years we've seen that trends are quickly turning the other way around um, as i said earlier people no longer want giant corporations to decide and deliver 
people want local, they want handmade, they want artisan, they want unique, and they want their cultures reflected in their choices. Unfortunately, none of these big brands can provide that because they've just unified so much in, in their design thinking. They've just copy pasted one model that has worked in one part of the world into every part of the world. But in some ways we've forgotten that what works in one cannot always work in another. We don't speak the same language. We don't even use the same colors. We don't, we don't do the same things. So how can one model work everywhere else? And that means that we have to unstandardize. We have to diversify our design. We have to not keep it so centralized. We have to decentralize our design. And, uh, and I'll, I'll start by saying that <clears throat> one of the companies that I think has done this brilliantly, who's understood that it's not a, about expanding at the cost of, uh, it's not just expanding rapidly, but it's about expanding very carefully. And I would say Apple has done a brilliant job because all their stores look very different. And they don't look different because they are trying to purposely make them look different, but they look different because they have tried to understand the neighborhood. They've tried to understand the, they've tried to understand the culture of that neighborhood. They've tried to understand the city, the state, the colors they use, the kind of architecture they have. That's why the, the Apple store in Brooklyn looks very different to the Apple store in London, to the one in Berlin, to the one in Dubai. And that means that they actually applied a lot of design thinking. They understood that it's not about Apple, but it's also about the community, what they are supposed to be. I always say this one thing that good design is always dynamic, relative and contextual. And that's what it's supposed to be, not just in the physical space, but also the digital space. That's uh, that, and that. It, there's the the quote of of the the day that anybody should should grab because it's 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 powerful, right? And it's profound in what we can do. And like you said, it's this interesting equilibrium of finding the perfect, you know, repeatable portion of a model, and yet having this dynamic you know dynamic capability to you know, adapts to a certain amount of local optimization, a certain amount of local, you know, adaptation. So that's, and I think that's where a lot of, you know, when you get in retail, obviously it's more prominent, um, you know, it's funny. And then of course you think of like the way that digital advertising works, it is very much around, you know, probably 10% consistency and 90% adaptation in that they're seeking out your, your background to try and pitch something to you, but they spend more effort in the seeking than they do in the, in the speaking. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very interesting, you know, as it goes from model to model, you know, industry to industry, it'll change. Now I would say that, you know, I've, uh, there's a great, actually a series called abstract. It's on, on Netflix. And uh, mm -hmm. one of the episodes about digital product design uh, features Ian Spalter, who at the time, um, was the head of design for Instagram. And I, I recommend this one as well for people to watch because it's a, a neat sort of view into how much time goes into sometimes the smallest thing because they're in fact larger than one would realize, like such as a logo design and you know certain things like that. Now, when you approach a brand building or like a, a product you know, design, 
where do you, how do you cut up? Like what is the small things that, that will take a lot, but mean a lot. And the big things that are, you know, that you can sort of lean into a team and, and say like, this is going to be user driven. This is going to be design driven. Like I'm curious how you approach a fresh new project and what, what your whiteboard or whatever your, your process looks like. Um, uh, sure. So I think one of the ways the, Whenever I get a project, I usually work on uh, a much uh, longer and more complex project. And and there is kind of a problem that's already set. Um, and I don't usually believe that that's the only problem I'm trying to solve. My job is to dive deeper into the problem. But coming in from advertising, I spent almost 10 years in advertising as a writer and strategy plays a big part in whatever I do. I always, always spend time thinking about what we are doing is what actually we are doing. And I'll, I'll start by giving this example. I've worked at Samsung Chase and currently I'm working, I'm, 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 I'm a consultant with Charles Schwab. And uh, one of the things I always believe that you're not doing what you believe you're doing. Um, and that goes with the fact that when people write the problem that our conversion is not great or people are leaving the site, the experience is not great. The problem isn't, problem isn't the experience. The problem is something else. Problem is not about that you're not able to connect the thing, but the problem is at a deeper level, you're not connecting with your audience the way you're supposed to be. So, so this, this actually one, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of McDonald's and um, Harry Sonobon, basically, he's the one who turned the entire McDonald's business around when McDonald's was actually failing because you can never make money by, by, having a margin of 15 cents on a burger, but you can make money if you think you're not a restaurant chain, but you are actually a real estate company. And I've written blogs around this. To me, Amazon is not an e-commerce company. It's a logistical company. And that's why they're good at doing everything they do because they don't approach it like they would as an e-commerce, they approach it as a logistics they work so hard for that last mile when it comes to you and trying to make that so seamless that you just feel convenience takes over everything else. And coming back to the point of my, um, how I handle projects and how I approach them is always question that are we exactly doing what our customers are expecting or are we missing out on some front? And looking at it from a 50,000 feet view always helps me. Like for example, none of the financial companies today for example, Chase, Charles Schwab, and E-Trade and Emirate, um, which is the one we talk about, they're not into financial industry. They're actually into a healthcare industry as well. And, and by saying that, I mean that today's volatility in the market has really made these companies think different because when people actually look at their balance or when they look at their dashboard and see 50% of their savings have been wiped off, that's not a financial institution problem. That's a healthcare problem. They might get anxiety. They might get other things. So when I see things in a completely different light, it helps me approach it differently. And then it's a matter of building a new hypothesis and combining all the problems that I have seen, but actually seeing it with a new light. So, so what I would do is I would understand the quick fix that will help us move forward, which are the small iterations. But on a, on a roadmap side, see the bigger picture, give it a different light altogether, because all of us would see things in a way that we are supposed to. But if we just think deeper and see things very differently, 
we will find that hidden gem that truly will connect to our audience. I always, I'm, I'm a chess player and I've always compared everything I do to a game of chess. That's how I think life has been the same because a product can do so well and you one mistake and you know that it, it can just fall. And same with the game of chess, you can play best game till the end of the time and end of the game. And once you make that blunder, you've probably lost. And, and in chess, you can go with the move that's right in front of you and that's an easy way out. Or you can think deeper and find a way to really go around and create that, um, create this kind of move that people aren't expecting and that can wow someone. And most of the brands today are doing that. It's a great point. And the, the, the example that I often uh, go back to is where, where it can actually go wrong. And like you said, if you take that, this is the, seems like the fastest, most effective move right now and not thinking beyond that. And it can be even inadvertent, the change that's made, but if it's not made with research, with, you know, customer focus and, and, you know, one that I always use an example is dig, dig dig.com. So D I double G.com for the folks that are old enough like me that used to use this. They were, they were incredible, right? Kevin Rose is sort of for, famous for having created this whole incredible ecosystem, however many hundreds of thousands, whatever, millions of users, and with the process of a single update, destroyed the company and like effectively evacuated the product because there was competitive pressure at the time. And this design change was enough that it moved, it, it changed the way that people interacted with it and they had now a competitive alternative. And so it was a variety of things that all came together like a perfect storm. Now, so that's where I'd love to get your thoughts, Nick. When design goes wrong and how, how would you come back from like a situation like that? Obviously hypothetical, but, you know, or have you actually felt that pain and been able to you know, retract or, or reapproach and, and recover uh, from those design you know, flaws that we reintroduce ourselves? Um, I think a lot goes into how we are as humans. Uh, I would answer that by saying that it's how we are. A lot of people don't like to admit their mistakes and they, they like to just keep following their mistakes. Like they know they're on, not on the right path but it's about keeping um it's about keeping a mindset that's open it's okay with or without design thinking it's not like we will always come across the right solution and to me there is no word as right because what may work for one may not work for the other but but in in even if 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 something doesn't work i think companies should embrace it doesn't work and can pull back and try another solution rather than making a mistake and going forward with it. And it's about having a really open mind. And one of the things I often say is that many of the companies like McDonald's deviated to what, how they were thinking, but there are companies who actually targeted a different kind of customer uh, segment, but they realized it did not work and something else worked. For example, a lot of people actually uh, uh, probably know this or probably don't, but Apple wasn't meant for designers. Apple did not want to target designers. Apple was built so that accountants can build beautiful invoices. And it's just a better tool for them to use and overall a better system. 
But accountants did not care because they're like, we're not here, we don't care about what the invoice looks like. We are happy with standard format we have. And that time Apple realized that that segment did not work very well, but another segment started using it is the people who are artists and, and designers. They started loving it because that's something they felt that was missing because most of the PC and everything around Microsoft was built around productivity and not around design. So they quickly took this approach and Apple, instead of trying to fight that, they realized, hey, you know what? It did not work well with accountants. Now we can actually move to the designer side and let's think what designers are looking for. And now we've seen the growth of the company, which has just been exponential every single day. And, and that's the thing, like design taking may not work every time, but have that courage to say it did not work go back to the drawing paper, uh, drawing table and start all over again because it's never too late. And another great example I would say is uh, Evernote. I think uh, people used to love it. That company was doing quite well, even with all the given competition. But I remember that this one pricing error that they did where they said that they won't allow more than two devices and their whole pricing strategy did not work exactly to what users were accepting. Uh, ex uh, users were expecting, sorry. They actually just lost thousands and thousands of users in a week. And instead of saying that we made a mistake and we're reversing it, they just kept going forward. And today, Evernote is not even in the top five. At one time, they were dominating the market when it came to uh, cloud note sharing. But today, they're just, a very few people use it who are loyal to them, but they're not able to expand because they never corrected the mistake. They just went going along with it. It's a, an interesting point as a uh, as an Evernote user myself, and I only hung on because I had so much content in there that it just I didn't have a need at the at the time to to leave. But so many people I know did, uh, and it is just that right. And and even as consumers, I think we're faster to do platform switching when given uh, a wall of sorts or some uh, like a block that we we dislike we are fickle beings really that we will whether it takes too much effort or not we'll we'll run to another platform or at least we'll give it a try uh, a great uh, one of my favorite things i recommend to people as well and learning how to be wrong and how great it can be is uh, uh, Catherine Schultz uh, she her she's a TED talk called on being wrong and actually there is a book on uh, on called being wrong and the idea that we as humans so dislike admitting, you know, error, uh, personal error, that we will push much farther towards a broken, broken end, uh, rather than say, hey, this is time to cut the cord and 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 go back to a different thing. So it's very interesting that you you bring that up. And on Apple, since I'm recommending books as well, and you you may know this one, it's uh, Ken Kosienda. Uh, did this book called Creative Selection, and it kind of unpacks a lot of the design process for the original iPhone, for some of the early software and, and hardware uh, when he was uh, in in uh, product design uh, at Apple. So it's it's very interesting to now we can go back and sort of read those stories of that were from the inside of it, and and it's interesting that you you see the results. Now, Nick, another thing I'd love to explore is. You, what are you feeling about the what we see today in folks called surveillance capitalism, right? The idea that we are doing what we can to keep people inside apps. 
and is you know the risk of that and because design has the ability to really hold somebody but it can also be then used for perhaps the wrong reasons or or not wrong but it can become unhealthy and i'm just curious to get your thought on on that side of you know the dangers of of great design keeping people in, into a product um absolutely i think um at some level i believe that a lot of people most of the iot devices are tracking you are tracking you nonstop and i think people have started understanding that and um, it's important for companies to track you because that helps them understand what are some of the use cases that people may have. Like, are you using their uh, devices more in office environment or outdoors or at home? It's important. But I think what has started becoming is some of this information is now being used to actually promote the whole, uh, to promote the service, to become trying to actually understand your world and trying to sell it to marketing, uh, uh, trying to sell it to the company's marketing purposes. Now, I think there is a very thin line here that companies have to be aware of because I think that's where they have left a hole. This is, we live in a democratic world and I think that when one company continuously does something wrong, they keep on making the hole bigger and someone else can come in and fill that gap. Now, yes, it they have to track it and, and one can be responsible. Just because you have a glass of alcohol doesn't mean that you can drive with it. So I, I kind of compare it to the same thing. It's about understanding where you need to stop because you have to get other things done. And companies have to realize that if they want these people to stay in the ecosystem, and it's very important because we are no longer in the product model. And when I say product model, we are no longer buying something and disposing it off. We are in the service world. The world is becoming one big service model, including governments have tried to embrace this. And this is just gonna grow. And in a service model, it's very important that you try and keep your customers within your ecosystem. And that means not doing stuff that really make them not trust you. And we, and, and I think somewhere down the line, designers can help fill this gap because it's about having an empathy and having that ground where you try to understand their privacy and their private life and not snoop on it all the time. Um, a lot of companies I've seen today and uh, some of the big names where they often use privacy as a feature. Oh, this one is 256-bit encrypted or this one is uh, we, we understand your privacy. But the problem is that's at a very product level. But at a brand level, they've already lost trust of the user. So no matter what your product does, I'm not going to trust you. I, I will never trust you because you have failed me again and again. And I think somewhere down the line, companies have to try and see not at the product level, but as a main pillar of their company. And there are companies who are doing this very well, who are saying that we will respect privacy right from the get-go and not thinking on page by page. Um, so I think this is important that companies have to understand that by doing so, yes, they can make some quick money, they can have some quick wins, the stock price will go up and everything looks juicy, but it will be a slow death over a period of time because another company will come in and say, we will respect your privacy. 
and they were because that is their new business model that is the gap that they found and this company over a period of time who's just trying to grab as much data for marketing purposes will just lose in the end yeah that's a great point and and what a what a fantastic analogy of of the the glass of alcohol to what you what you do as a result of having it and i think that's that's something i i've been a long time sort of student of of bj fogg and the idea of persuasive computing and what we can do around shaping behavior through design and 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 you know product usage and in and, and everything like not just in in software but in general uh and it's interesting that his philosophies were so strong and so incredibly powerful that it actually created a a vast generation of people that abused it. And now uh, BJ Fogg and and folks like Tristan Harris are, are very strongly coming out to say, you know, we've, we've, we have to be very careful. We've effectively commoditized this handgun of power that we've now sold to all these these software designers and then they're not going to think about the impact of using it and and so it's it's a dangerous thing but it's it's great and i appreciate your your thought on it now this is the uh, uh, my one of my favorite sayings that you know you'll probably you've heard many a time and, and it'll mean a lot around design and what we're really building right is the old classic saying like don't you're not selling a drill you're selling a hole and and then a great salesperson say you're not selling a hole you're selling the reason that your your spouse is angry at you is because you haven't hung up the picture which means that you need to a drill a hole in order to get that done <laughs> it's it's i'm curious on you know how how much of those sort of witty things that we use in sayings you know they're they're built in truth right absolutely um, I, I, this is kind of a model that I always like to use at uh, whichever project I'm involved with. Um, I like to call it jobs to be done, right? It's a format that a lot of people actually has started embracing and using it. I started using it almost four years back. Um, jobs to be done is a great way because what is the job that you want to get done, right? And, and I think that helps with personalization, that helps understand that it's not what they're doing, but they're doing something else. Uh, they want to do something else, and that's why they have to do this. So exactly the example of people are drilling a hole to actually put a nail, but they don't need to when they can just have uh, a, a hook which can be just glued to the wall, right? And, uh, and that's exactly the point, is understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it. and building solutions upon that. It's not just about giving them a bigger drill or giving them a nicer uh, nail in there or better design nail. It's just about rethinking the whole format of the way what they're looking to do. And and jobs to be done can really help because, because one of the great examples I think of jobs to be done is that, you know, a, a vitamin tablet actually till the time it's it's at the pharmaceutical or it's been made, it's called as a drug. It's called as, um, it's called as a drug, right? But when it comes to a pharmacist or when it comes to a Walgreens shelf, it suddenly becomes a vitamin. So it's like, and then they don't talk about it being a vitamin. They talk about what it can do for you and where you need this product. So I think 
throughout the product journey, things can be, uh, the way you can talk about things can be very different. And I'm not just talking about marketing, but I'm also talking about how people would perceive that. And I think that's very important to understand that why they're doing certain things that they're doing. Um, I, I'd like to discuss one example here where um, I wrote a blog about this and it was fascinating when I actually thought about it, that we as humans want to try everything out. We want to buy a new phone. We want to go to uh, an Apple store, try it. We want to buy furniture. We want to see how it feels or right from television to even a car. We want to test drive the car. But there's one thing that we never actually want to try it out before we buy it. And it's probably the biggest purchase of 99% of the world population. And that's a house. Right. When people actually buying a house, they're not staying in it to experience what it feels like. They're just going ahead, seeing it a couple of times and spending, uh, you know, X amount, X amount of dollars into the house. And most of the time they're going to live there for the rest of their lives. So it's so fascinating trying to understand how we do things and how we uh, why we do it, because for a $20,000 car, we want to test drive it. We want to do our research and all that. But when it comes to buying a house, which is sometimes over a million dollars, we don't question it. Nobody's come with a model where they say that, you know what, we are going to let you stay in this house for two days. We're going to charge you $1,000 for two days. You experience it. If you like it, you go ahead and buy it. Because to me, letting them stay in that two days becomes a business model itself. And that's when the jobs to be done kind of helps. What are they looking to do? Would they like to experience this? Yeah, well, the house buying experience is such an interesting thing. Uh, and for folks, we'll, I'll have a link to your medium uh, anyways. And, and it's the, one of the many uh, great, uh, great articles you wrote. And the idea that, you know, in I've sold a few houses in my own time, you know, as I've moved around and the, the careful personalization and depersonalization of the home to make it the most sellable. You want to make it look lived in, but not a home. Like you want furniture, but not family pictures. You want, you want it to look familiar, but not personalized. It's a very interesting sort of design approach when you're staging a house. That's the reason, you know, that is, you know, when people have an empty house, they usually will pay money to stage it to look like it's being lived in because the staging will actually increase the value more than the empty house. So it's worth $10,000 on a million dollar home because you'll get 1 million, one hundred thousand instead of 900,000 because it looks like it's could be lived in. Not that it is. It's a very interesting, strange world. The whole psychology of real estate, right? Mm-hmm. So if I, if you could tell somebody, obviously, number one, buy the book, right? <laughs> I would, I would recommend folks, you know, the idea of, of extraordinary design and, and what it's for, but what made you write the book? Uh, and, and I'd, cause that, I think that experience and, and taking that choice to, to create, uh, create the book, people would love to hear and, and that'll probably entice them to, to buy it even more so than just the fact that it's very, very well done. Um, sure. So I think um, while I was studying uh, my business design and, and having studied uh, design thinking and coming in from advertising world, I've always learned to question things. But just because as an industry, we're following it doesn't mean that uh, one shouldn't question it. And I was just like, 
human-centered design, that is just such an amazing term. It works, but after understanding it completely, I was like, there is a problem with this. And, and the idea came along with the whole, the, the idea was to question everything that happens in the industry and what are the norms that we follow and why do we follow it just because we've been told to. So it, it's kind of a companion guide for designers who are at a stage in their career where they're starting to question the status quo, right? It's just like how some people question where they, where they live or how things are done or if they can do it better. It's the same way. I was just questioning human-centered design purely because of all the problems in the world that happen today, most of them are because we've always put ourselves at the center of the story. We've always thought human-centered design. Yes, those three, those three are magical words when combined together, but human-centered design is not new. Human-centered design has been going on for thousands of years where everything we've done to the environment, everything that we've done to the animal kingdom, everything that we've done to the society is shaped around how we want to get things done. And we've come to a point in our life that it's no longer working. And it's in fact now affecting us because we can't be living in a world where everything around us is getting destroyed, where we are not gonna be, uh, we're not gonna be any better than, uh, you know, it is somewhat related. We live in a very globalized world. If there is, if, if, the, if the ocean is rising in Greenland or if ice is melting in Iceland, we are gonna see the effects here. So uh, the book is based around three main topics. One is standardization, uh, which is why do we standardize things so much that we lose the beauty of having something, um, having that own design language, having a culture or having our own personality in design. Um, the second topic is thinking beyond human-centered design. And this is, this is important because one of the things that often is now thought in design world or even in schools is human-centered design. But we have to think about everything. We can't always put ourselves at the center of the story. And one of the examples I often use is if, if a user has a place at the center of the design, so does every other living thing. We are part of the ecosystem. We are not the whole ecosystem. And I'd like to discuss two examples to, to kind of uh, talk more about that. Um, sure, that'd be great. Um, one of the examples is we all, we all as kids have been to a zoo. I've, I've been an animal rights lover since I was a kid. I've never frankly been to a zoo. I've never, um, and, and yeah, it's just something that is against my principles, but people go to zoo and zoos are a perfect example of what the flaws in human-centered design. We go to zoo just so that we can see animals. We can, we can see how they look. We can see what they do and their behaviors. And we try to justify it a lot by saying that, oh, we're actually preserving endangered species, or it's a way of exposing our children to the wonders of the nature. Well, it's not. The, the, the way zoos are designed is it gets animals to be like, it's not meant for them, they're bored. The habitat is not built for animals' comfort. It's built so that when a kid wants to see an animal or a lion, he gets to see one. And this is a beautiful example of uh, flaws in human-centered design and how this has been tackled, because I also want to talk about how designers today can think 
not just putting humans at the center of the story, but actually thinking the other way around. So there's zoo being built in Denmark today called Zootopia. It's still a concept, but, um, but it's been approved and they're starting to build it. And what they've done is they've reversed the whole, um, the whole story. They've actually, they're actually building a real forest with real animals and they've put humans on a small circular dome on top in a way that they can't, animals can't see them, but the humans can see the animals. And basically we are in a small cage. The humans will be in a small cage where they will get to see the animals. Now, this is a beautiful story purely because what they've done is they've actually understood who needs to be at the center of the story. It's not humans, it's the animals. We want to see the animals. Animals don't want to see us. And through design thinking, they've actually tackled every aspect of it. They have tackled in the ways that we can naturally see them in their habitat, the, 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 they, the way they would hunt, the way they would um, do other things, they drink water or sleep or that, not being in a small claustrophobic uh, cage, doing things forcefully. This is naturally. So this is a perfect example of what human-centered design is, is not working and how we can think beyond that. And some of the other examples are also like cloud seeding, what, uh, what happened during Olympics in China or what, happened, what happens in America or what happens in Europe and other parts of the world where cloud seeding is taking, um, is kind of uh, happening. And that's just again, based on what humans want to do to the environment or even fireworks. We know that how many animals get disturbed when we lit up fireworks, but we do it because it's, it's celebration for us or even our palm oil production, which is about eating our chips and what happens to the rainforest in Indonesia or even the dolphin shows where uh, some of these, most of the dolphins are forced to uh, perform for us because we enjoy it. And these are the flaws. These are the ways in which we think human-centered design, but it's actually destroying a lot of things around us. So, so one of the main topics in the book is thinking beyond human-centered design, taking that challenge of saying it doesn't always work and we have to think differently. We have to put everyone at the center of the story and not just ourselves. It's such a fundamental thing that it's so easy to lose sight of as well, just because of the, 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 the bigness, you know, the sort of the fact that it's uh, it feels unchangeable and so people lack the willingness to uh, sort of attack the the issues but it, it is interesting that almost in the same way with you know when we do measurement of people and, and measurement of behaviors it's the you know eli goldratt's famous saying is show me show me how you measure me and i'll show you how i behave right we when we do design and you incentivize things you will find people will game the system and they, there's a reason they call it gaming the system. They will play a game to, to, uh, to win. Uh, and it, they may not, you may find it being used, but not in the way you'd expect. And we can, we have the opportunity to create that for both good and, and, and bad. And if you're not measuring the right thing in how people are using a system or staying involved, it, and this is where research comes into play, now, Nick, when when you're building, say, a user interface or or a, a, an an in-store experience or an in-branch experience, how how much of the time is really spent 
with people and, and saying, okay, I show you, if I show you this, what do you, what, how do you feel about that? Or, or like how much is that sort of customer guided part of it uh, in, in those early and even throughout the design phase? Um, absolutely. So I think at some point it's at every, every, every pit stop, we want to get a feedback from our customers. So right before we even start, what we're trying to understand, uh, what we're trying to do is understanding the problems from our customers. The first voice is the customers and also the stakeholders who are part of the project, which is the internal team. And I think when we start creating a hypothesis or even when we start designing and iterating it, we want to get our customers involved at every stage right till the end. So that at, at and I think this is important for every company to do it because in some ways it just, they help you understand if any phase that you're just uh, pivoting to an area you shouldn't be, or if you're going in the wrong direction, basically. And uh, by doing that, we also, in some ways, making sure that we don't, we, we're not spending way too much time and money on pivoting or going in the wrong direction and then just following up on that, you know? Um, because at some point, if a customer tells us, no, this, I don't understand this, we can quickly go back to the drawing board and, and change things. But if you've already gone all the way into development and all, and then when you go to customers and they tell you, no, I don't seem to understand what you're trying to do, then you have to, then you've incurred a lot of time and more importantly, the cost. So customers or whoever the stakeholder is, has to come at every point. It's the uh, the reason why agile in 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 software design has become so uh, prominent and empowering in in creating great things, because of not the way that it's managed as a project or or as a set of tasks, but really as the iterative, customer driven uh, results. The fact that you are prototyping constantly and, and and not prototyping for the engineers but prototyping for people using the system and learning from that it's it's such a it's an interesting thing uh and especially when i look at manufacturing you know it's it's incredible how much has to be done in those first phases that if if you don't get feedback then you can find yourself as you say spent uh in time and and re, you know money resources and not actually having something that somebody would want to to use at the end so i'm curious nick if someone's getting started they're maybe a new product manager uh or product marketing or even just thinking about getting into design and ui ux design what's what are good ways that you you tell them to think and, and places to go to get started i'm curious if you have like you know, you know, courses or, or books or stuff that you would recommend? Uh, absolutely. I think um, if someone really wants to be a designer, then I think some of the classical books are um, some, uh, it's about what kind of design they get actually interested in. Um, and if, if it's you, if it's about product design, one of the things, books I recommend is, uh, I'm actually not very good with names, but um, it's, uh, it's the most classical book by, uh, Don, um, um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, this is no, you, you, you can't imagine how many times this happens to me as well. I'll be like, I, it was a book and, and I used to work in a bookstore and I would get this all the time. Like I have the, I was, it, you're like, I read it. 
even if I read it, I'm like, I can't remember the title. <laughs> but, uh, but definitely, I will, okay, so basically I would say the book that I recommend is by Don Norman, um, The Design of Everyday Things. It's definitely a great book because it helps people understand that how to, how to understand the flaws in design, how to see things differently. Another book that I really recommend, and I, I don't always tell people to read design books, but they should also try and read other books. Some of the books is definitely Start With Why um, by- um, Simon Sinek, by Sam- yeah, yeah, very good. Um, very good. By, by understanding this, I think, I see a lot of people today wanting tools or wanting very practical books, which actually takes them step by step. And in some ways, I think it's wrong to do that because it's wrong for, for any one of us, including myself, to kind of take books that take you step by step guidance. You, you really, you're not learning. You're just learning how to get the task done. You really want to learn the theory of it. And that's why I start with why or um, the, the, the design flaws of, uh, you know, the design of everyday things really helps you understand how to see the flaws even with everyday designs. So for, I, I do a lot of calls on LinkedIn where I uh, give advice to some of the students and um, upcoming designers. And one thing I always tell them is that be a great UX UI designer, but be a better thinker because 90% of your time, you should already have the entire story and design in your mind. Only 10% of the time you should spend on doing what you're doing. Because a lot of people actually, as soon as they hear that, oh, I have to build an app for this thing, they start prototyping. And, and in some ways, I always tell them, what are you even, like, at some point, you also don't know what you're trying to prototype. It's, um, so it's better to kind of read books that will help them think a lot on what is strategy, because you always want to think over things before you do it. At my job, I do 99% of the times I spend on doing presentations on design thinking and and looking at the product strategy. And of that, a lot of people tell me, but you're not, I mean, I built over like 30, 40 decks, but they're like, we don't see you on Keynote or PowerPoint all the time. How much time? 90% of the times I just spend by, by thinking about what my deck is and what my story is, that's the most important thing. Because as designers, we are also great storytellers and we have to be. Um, and, and, and only 10% of the time when I, the story is entirely in my mind, then I just go ahead and do it. I'm not trying anything out of my slides or I'm not trying to build the story. The story is in my mind. And in some ways, I would also tell designers and strategists and MBA students to not just think design, but also like, to, to train your mind with some strategy, read some strategy books. There are some amazing strategy books out there or play chess or play games that will really help you develop your strategy side of things. Because uh, most of the times our fingers are very fidgety and we want to get things started as soon as we hear about it. But in some ways, it's just good idea to just sit down, relax, think about it. And then once you know that you're in the right direction and how do you know you're in the right direction? something inside will tell you that this is great and this is going to work. And that's when you start doing things. So yes, read a lot about your topic that you want to get into, but read something that will help you develop your other skills as well. I think those are sage words, uh, Nick, and, and, I, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. And thank you for sharing that. This has been a great 
discussion and uh, I've learned a lot and it's, it, it makes me not want to go build something, but go think about what needs to be built. And I think that's really, it's, it's, uh, I work, you know, I, I worked recently on a, on a project and, and it was this very sort of similar thing. We're trying to find these sort of sentences to describe why it's an important thing. And the first thing you come up with is like, it's, it's fast. It does a thing like in it. And you come up with these sort of like feature descriptions. And then we literally, we were going back and forth amongst all these different people iterating on the best seven words to use to describe the speed of it and, and whatever. And in the end, someone says, why does the speed matter? And all of a sudden, like just everybody just stops and like, oh man, who who's using this? What matters to them? And it's, you know, you're reducing the amount of time you spend doing something. Aha, now I have a story. <laughs> and then you work against that. And it's it's tough. It's tough, especially for newcomers to to this you know, ecosystem and, you know, straight out of school, quite often they get in the first thing, they just want to get their hands dirty. And uh, I think we're all, we all get so excited like that. There's nothing like physically doing something or, or seeing something come from an idea to, to a product. But, uh, you know, these are, are great advice. So again, I will recommend uh, the book. Uh, so Nick will we'll have links, of course, um, to your website, uh, to your medium. Uh, because you are, are are such a great uh, great writer, uh, and the stories that you tell there are are very very well done, uh, and of course the book uh, is something that I will recommend to folks. I'll include links. Was the future of extraordinary design, uh, and for folks that want to reach you, uh, what's the best way for for someone to get in contact with you, Nick? Um, it's uh, there's a contact form on my website, and also the best way to reach out is link, uh, LinkedIn. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I usually do reply back in a day. So yeah, um, I'm happy to talk to anyone who wants to talk about design or just grab a cup of coffee. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and it's especially in the all digital world that we're going to be in for, for quite a while, uh, you know, being able to connect remotely and, and use these social tools uh, for, for this kind of thing. It's a great opportunity. So thank you very much for sharing this uh, conversation with me, Nick. I've, I've really appreciated it. Thank you so much.